welcome to the Diplomen podcast, where we will be talking with and about incredible women mediators, facilitators, negotiators, ambassadors, peacemakers, peace builders, and more. I am Karma Ekmekci, and I will be your host in this journey of mainstreaming the women, peace, and security agenda into our lifestyles. With a focus on the Arab region, the Diplomen podcast comes to you in collaboration with the Isan Fars Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut and is made possible by the generous support of UN Women. The Arabic subtitled video edition is available on the Diplomen podcast YouTube channel. We're thinking out loud with Sara Mankara in this new episode of the Diplomen podcast. Sara has been recently appointed as special advisor by US President Joe Biden on international disability rights at the US State Department. She is an internationally recognized champion for disability inclusion and individual empowerment. She is the founder of Empowerment Through Integration, which aims at providing critical life skills, uh, life skills trainings uh, to children with disabilities. Sara is a graduate of Harvard Kennedy School. Sara, thank you for being with us today at the Diplomen Podcast. It is an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much, Carmen. I'm excited to be with you today. Sara, tell us a little bit um, about yourself. I mean, you've done so much over the years uh, working on disability rights, on inclusion, but how did your own journey start, your childhood? So I'm, I'm first going to introduce myself and tell, you know, introduce my story through a unique way and then I'll, I'll dive into kind of it. Please go ahead. I usually introduce myself this way because it allows for, for us to see kind of the different identities that we all hold. So I'm a daughter. I'm a sister, I'm a friend, I'm a colleague, I'm a neighbor, I'm a traveler, I'm a troublemaker, I love math, I love horses, I love coffee, I love tea chicken, I love audiobook mystery thrillers. I'm a woman, I'm Muslim, I am blind, I'm a person with a disability, and I'm very proud of it. And we are very proud of you, we're very proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, and I end, I end with this point, you know, being a person with disability and being proud of it. And, you know, this was, to be honest, this is a big part of who I am and my journey and what, what, I, what my purpose is in life and what I've been able to focus. And it really stems from my personal experience of having become blind and I became blind at age seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and my older sister is also um, visually impaired. And But my parents really focused on creating a space where we were empowered, we were included, and we were valued. And these are these are these are common um, themes in, that, that end up being part of you know my, my life and my purpose. But one important aspect is they did not allow society's expectations or lack thereof surrounding disability to ever enter my home because. What's the narrative surrounding disability? It's the charity, charity pity narrative. But instead, they really focus on having us live a full life and really push forward and be ambitious, etc. And ultimately, that contrasted with what I've what I saw out in the world, and that's what led me to kind of starting ETI and doing what I do right now. 
Very inspiring, uh, Sara. Your story, I know, I mean, you just gave us a minute, uh, collapsed your whole, uh, you know, uh, childhood into, uh, into a minute, but uh, I'm sure um, there were probably a lot of challenges along the way, no? I mean, I don't think, I mean, anything in life comes easy, but uh, particularly with your journey, what were some of the major obstacles you faced growing up? How did you overcome them? Uh, did you face discrimination along the way? Definitely. And I'll, I'll start with the last question. I mean, I definitely dealt with a lot of ableism. You know, it, unfortunately, the the narrative surrounding disability is so strong in, in our world, in our societies. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that seeps into all aspects of life. Um, so we always say in the disability community that our greatest disability is how society sees us. Right. And so with that in mind, I've, I've had a lot of obstacles. I would say a lot of technical obstacles of how the world is not accessible in many ways, mm -hmm. but also adaptive obstacles, which is, you know, I've had people say, well, you should be in my class because, you know, you want to major in math and you're blind, you know. Um, or I remember I had a study abroad experience where the university was not willing to be accessible and I had to come back to my and not be able to continue my study abroad experience. So I've had a lot of different obstacles in that sense, but I go back and say, because my parents really pushed us to you know, see, embrace all of who we are and because they pushed us to have dreams and ambitions and because they also taught us how to be advocate for ourselves. And to be honest, we need to know, like every single person with a disability needs to learn how to be advocate for themselves because the world is not yet there where we're fully accepted and included. Yes, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how the world is unfair and how there's a lot of exclusion still, whether it comes to, you know, peace and security, how to deal with conflict resolution and, and beyond. But um, just to close the, the, the circle with your, with your childhood, what was your turning point? I mean, uh, when did you realize that this is what you want to dedicate your life to? I mean, yes, you're a person with disability, but of course you could have chosen to do something else, right? I mean, you could have, but, but you've really dedicated your whole life to this. And uh, what was that um, point where you said, okay, uh, I have a mission and I'm going to undertake this? Really good question because I, because I was a math and an economics major in undergrad and I was planning on doing a PhD in that field. And to be honest, that it would have been a much quieter life <laughs> in many ways. Um, but, you know, I ended up starting my nonprofit and it was, you know, it was kind of, I don't want to say by accident, but it, it was, um, it, it was, it started, it stemmed from this uh, summer program that I had um, done with my, my, my friend and my classmate, Mason Murad in Tripoli, Lebanon. It was funded by the Clinton Foundation and we, um, we were able to run this inclusive summer camp in Tripoli, Lebanon, where my parents are from. Mm -hmm. And it brought together blind and sighted kids, so kids with, with and without disabilities. And the purpose of the camp was to teach the value of inclusion. And I just saw how powerful the, the camp was and the impact that it was on the kids, on the parents, on the community, and even for myself, because it was the first time that I, you know, I actually told the world, you know, I am blind and I'm proud of it. It was a, it was a big moment in my life too. And, um, I didn't, it was a successful summer, but I, again, I went back to my, my major and then my thesis advisor, he was like, why are you applying to these PhD programs? Your eyes sparkle when you talk about the summer camp. 
And like, you should pursue that. That's where your passion is. And it, it, it is because I realized how privileged I was to have had a supportive, empowering system around me. But there's so many kids out there that I kept on seeing and interacting with that are not seen for who they are and they're not valued. And I think that was my turning point, almost like I, you know, this became my purpose. And, and even, I mean, on a personal level, yes, I do deal with, you know, obstacles. I do deal with doubt. I do deal with imposter syndrome. I do deal with a lot of different things, Uh but again, like I, I was, I, I consider myself privileged with what I was given. So that's kind of, that was my turning point. Um, but I don't want to also, I want to kind of, you know, you know, mention that along the way I had amazing people. I'll give you an example. Like I had amazing teachers, like my math professor in college, mm-hmm. he made the classroom so accessible. You know, he was, he was very articulate and explained things really well and was really accommodating but do you know what ended up happening all my friends would say Sarah which math class are you taking because math the professor has to be, it becomes a better teacher so it came to this point of the inclusion of all the value for all they benefited when I was in that class because the professor became a better math teacher which is amazing right it is. That time. it is you you there are two things you've mentioned that I want to focus on the first is you said Lebanon your parents are from Lebanon um and uh, were you were you raised were you born and raised in the U.S. Um, did you visit Lebanon often? Um, all these questions. Do you think growing up in America contributed to your achievements? Had you been living in the Arab world? Had you been living in Lebanon? Would Saddam Ankara's path, uh, path look any different? And the second question I want to ask you is about, or the second point I wanted to focus on was accessibility. You mentioned this word a number of times and. Yes, accessibility is um, a major, major issue. I mean, uh, uh, persons with disabilities, especially living in, in conflict settings, uh, you know, face the issue of accessibility. So um, imagine, you know, in our part of the world, accessibility is a huge issue for people with disabilities. I want to also talk a little bit about that. I know I have so many questions, so let's first start with Lebanon and your ties to Lebanon and how America contributed to your achievements. Yeah, that's a good question. So, born and raised in the U.S., but we used to visit Lebanon every single summer um, growing up. Every single summer to visit extended family, and it, it it was a big part of kind of my upbringing. And and this is where I saw you know the diversity in this world of how disability is seen. Um, I definitely I definitely believe because I was um, raised in the U.S. Um, I was given the privilege of being able to depend on certain laws, right? There's the American with Disability Act, which the ADA, which allows for kids with disabilities to have um, access to inclusive education. Mm-hmm. So when I became blind age seven, I was able to still continue going to my public school system, the mainstream public school system. The school was uh, required to make sure that the, the, that the classrooms are accessible, Mm-hmm. Um, and and that in itself, when you have a law and policy to protect you, um, that allows you to really be able to 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 advocate for yourself. Not to say I go back to, but there will always be humans, and this is what we also need to address the narrative. There will always be individuals and humans that will see disability in the charity narrative, you know, or less yes. than narrative, or an added uh, burden narrative. And I think that's something we need to be addressing. Um, 
as, as a global society. And that connects with your second question is, um, I look at accessibility from two lenses. One is the technical lens, which is how do you create an infrastructure that's accessible for all? Mm -hmm. But then also how do you create a culture and an environment that is accessible for all? How do you create a culture where people with disabilities are seen as a value? They're not just seen, you know, when you talk about peace, um, conflict, places of conflict and, um, and moments of you know, peace and security, we look at persons with disability kind of from the lens, this is the right thing to do, let's make sure we are protecting them, right? But I want to take a step further and I want to say, talk about how do we make sure that we also see their value in this process? Mm -hmm. Not only protect them, but then how do we make sure we see people with disability through the lens of value? And when the global community, when human, humanity and individuals see people with disabilities as individuals with value, we from the get-go are... are going to want to create systems that are accessible and inclusive and make sure that they're part of the system. So this value-based narrative is a big part of why things are, are, are global societies not really are. We have challenges towards accessibility. Absolutely, and we're going to get to some of the recommendations you have to address these challenges. But let me uh, uh, address the issue of peace and security. You, you are sitting, you have a front row seat Sarah, you have a front row seat sitting at the State Department uh, to the peace and security agenda of the, of the world, in a sense. You see uh, the different conflicts that are happening. Uh, there's a lot of uh, you know, instability currently in the world. Um, and as you know, uh, there's a Security Council Resolution 13, 1325, which is a landmark resolution on women, peace and security. Uh, unfortunately, there's very little reference in Security Council Resolution 1325 and the subsequent resolutions that followed uh, on, uh, you know, um, gender-specific needs of women uh, with disabilities. Uh, these are not being met during or after uh, conflicts. So there's a lot of work um, to be done there. And um, how do you view this? I mean, already, already, uh, there's a huge struggle for uh, including women on peace tables and sadly women with disabilities have not even been considered uh, and that's a reality as harsh as that sounds I have to say it I have to articulate it so how do you um, address some of these challenges are you thinking from where you're sitting about uh, these issues and um, what are some of the you know measures uh, that we can take together, collectively, as a global society to address these, these issues? That's a, really, that's a really good question. And um, yeah, women with disabilities are not even part of the conversation, are not even part of the, the kind of the framework. And that's actually something that um, I'm focusing a lot with my team on, is how do we make sure that, and it goes back to this point, is how do we make sure when we're talking about peace and security, we're talking about negotiations and peace processes, mm -hmm. how do we make sure that, you know, um, women with disabilities, persons with disabilities are part of the conversation, are sitting at the table, are seen as, as valued members like anyone else. But it goes back to Karma, the whole point of we, the world, are not yet seeing persons with disabilities as more than a human rights issue mm -hmm. uh, and more than this is the right thing to do. We need to come to a point where we see persons with disabilities, women with disabilities, 
as part of the solution. Because let me tell you something, women in general, when they're part of the peace and security process, the, the, the solutions, the outcome are so much better than w- without women. Absolutely. Add that, with, add that with women and disabilities, persons with disabilities themselves are the most creative and innovative and resilient individuals. The value that they can bring to the, to the conversation is going to be really important. But again, we don't see them as, as points and individuals of value. And this is my biggest um, frustration when we talk about inclusion of persons with disability. It's not just the right thing to do. There's a value, and we're losing out on their value when we're not including them part of the, the, the process. So in order for us to really come, you know, and this is a very abstract, you know, conversation, mm-hmm. but it is very much, it goes back to the core root of why we have all these issues around uh, around um, um, are, are around the challenges in the global community when it comes to inclusion and et cetera. So anyways, so I would say really promoting this value-based narrative um, across the board. Absolutely. I still feel, I mean, as counterintuitive as the sounds, we're treating inclusive inclusivity in silos. You know, we talk about, oh, okay, let's include women, let's include the youth, let's include, this, but we don't look at it as one whole piece of the puzzle. I mean, I don't know what you think about that, but this, this is how I feel right now. I feel like we say inclusivity, we say inclusivity, but then we don't really act upon what we're saying. It, I mean, and that, that, goes, that goes back to why the way I introduce myself with always around it. Every single person has multiple identities. Um, you know, there's so many intersectional ways of looking at humanity and the community that we're in. And like to your point, yes, we're, we silo. It's very, it's very ironic and very, you know, we silo the, these different communities and identities, you know. But again, it's to your point. We need to be looking at when we're looking at women, women, women with these multiple different identities, women with disabilities, women with disabilities of ethnic and religious minorities, women with disabilities, ethnic and religious minorities with other, you know. There's so many different identities that we can be looking at the individual, and we're not just one identity. And I think that is very harmful when we don't look at people with their multiple layers and identities that they're bringing forward. Again, um, yeah. I mean, this is why intersectionality is so important right now. And we, it has to go beyond being a buzzword at the moment. We really need to look at that, like put that intersectional lens at everything that we do. I, I mean, um, Sarah, I wanted to um, ask you a question on legislation. I mean, you said earlier that the reason why it was America played a big role in your achievement is because of the legislation that exists in the US. Um, How can you help other countries achieve that kind of legislation? I mean, I know in our part of the world, unfortunately, you know, we're not there yet. Uh, There's a lot of accessibility uh, issues. Uh, People with disabilities don't have the adequate legislation. Uh, that is required. Um, how can you contribute to that from where you're sitting at the moment? Um, that's a really good question. So first, um, a lot of most countries have actually ratified the CRPD, which is the Conventions on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the UN Convention. So in technicality, you know, there there are some policy, you know, there are some legislations in a lot of in, in a lot of these countries. I think where the work. Um, where the work is, is how do we support these countries with giving the how 
and the why and the importance of why we need to be addressing the person with the disability community. And that's whether we're sharing best practices um, that we, the U.S. have, but then other communities and other countries have been able to bring forward, whether that's looking at solutions in a localized localized solutions that are tailored to the country and that we use design thinking innovation because a lot of in a lot of spaces you hear well we don't have enough resources right mm-hmm. um but i i truly believe when communities are see the value in this legislation and want to implement people will find ways to 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 to, to, to support if that makes sense so a big part of kind of the work that we're also trying to do is also bring forward that narrative, that narrative change and bring forward that value-based narrative. Because again, when you have communities wanting to include persons with disabilities, they'll find solutions. So it's a combination of sharing best practices. It's a combination of giving any support that we can. It's a combination of bringing forward that value-based narrative. Um, all of that will help kind of move towards and moving the, you know, moving, moving the conversation forward. We spoke about you know, the importance of inclusion and peace building, but how, how far are we? How far are we right now from having an inclusive tomorrow? We're far and close. So, I mean, there's, there's, a, lot of, um, there, there's a lot of work to be done, um, but I know right now, if you look at the global community, there are conversations around inclusion towards different identities, right? There are, the, the fact that we are talking about women Women, the inclusion of women in peace and security process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of these conversations are important. The people, the, the communities, and the global communities becoming more aware. So I think that's a really that's a really great thing. Um, but we're so far in the sense that um, when we're looking at inclusion, we tend to look at solutions from a tech for a very technical lens. Oh, let's make sure we, you know. You know, bring forward this technical solution to inclusion, but tech, inclusion is not easy. And if it was easy, it would have been achieved, right? And I think we need to be looking at the core core reasoning behind why inclusion hasn't been achieved when we're looking at solutions. I think that's why, um, to your point earlier, when we're so we're, when we're siloing the different identities, right? We're like, oh, that's inclusion of this group and then this group and this group. We're mm-hmm. not really digging into the core aspect of why. There's, there's marginalizations of different communities, why inclusion hasn't been achieved. Mm-hmm. I would say the adaptive work still needs to get done. And we're not, you, I, I look at a lot of different kind of, um, I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, so the, the Grameen Bank, um, um, when it was founded, Muhammad Yunus, he, um, he tells a story in his book where you know, he was in a village in Bangladesh and he um, he met this woman. She was weaving a basket and selling the baskets, but most of the profit was going to the loan shark because mm-hmm. she couldn't access the mainstream economy. Right. Um, so he 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 himself at that moment wanted to give her, you know, if he gave her twenty dollars, it would have, you know, fixed her life in many ways. That would have helped her and he would have felt good as well. But ultimately, he took a step back and he said, that's not what she's asking for. She's not asking for a charity. She's not asking um, to, um, to, to be, you know, to, to be helped in this way. What she, along with every single other woman, is asking for to be included into that economy. 
Right. And that's what led him to starting this microfinance institution, right? To give kids access to women, um, to the financial system. So that in itself, the technical solution was to give her that, you know, that money. The adaptive solution is to understand, okay, women are not able to access the financial institutions. Let me come up with a solution that will allow for, for, for women to actually thrive. Right. Goes yeah. back to disability. Disability community is not asking for charity or pity or to, you know, we are asking to be seen as valued member of society. We're asking to access. We're asking to be included. And so you, if we look at solutions where it's very much through a charity lens, that's actually hurting us more than helping us. So mm -hmm. that's, that's what I say. There's so, there's so our work to be done when it comes to inclusion. Absolutely. And I feel like marginal, marginalized groups, marginalized groups, um, we should come together and have this conversation together. I mean, you know, in unity, there's strength. And so um, we need to have these conversations, you know, uh, more and more in in an in a, in a academic setting, in a friendly setting, in a policy setting, to see how inclusion can be, you know, um, sustainable and long-term together. Exactly. We should come together and then we should also include, you know, the the mainstream kind of um, system. As we always say, when we talk about women issues, we shouldn't just be, as women talk, we're talking, um, you know, having an echo chamber, how do we make sure we actually include the others, you know, the, the, the rest of the community. And I would say the same thing with disability. Let's make sure we are engaging everyone and engaging not just persons with disabilities, but everyone. Um, because that we need to be able to bring that narrative to the to the mainstream kind of space. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, just I mean, one one story that really resonated with me on this on this point is you know I was in grad school and we were in a classroom full of hundred students and you know they had name cards and that allowed us you know with the name cards allowed people to be able to better participate and. Um, uh, in the beginning of the semester, I told I told my classmates, "Hey guys, can you please say your name when you speak? Because it's going to allow me to better to be able to participate." Mm -hmm. And the professor was like, "No," and I was like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "The way you phrase it is as if they're doing you a you're doing them a, they're doing you a favor mm -hmm. um, by making the classroom accessible for you." He's like, "You that you need to by them making that classroom accessible to you by you contributing, they're benefiting from your contribution." So actually. They're doing themselves a favor. And that for me was a really huge shift in my own mind. That was a huge turning moment in my own mind when I understood what inclusion meant. Absolutely. But I mean, in a, in, a, in a setting where you were told that you were asking for something and that was the answer, you know, it's amazing that you, that was a turning point for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm a... I mean, I mean, it was very, I mean, of course, when he said no, I was like, what do you mean no? Exactly. What do you mean? But, like. My, my advocacy side came out, like, what do you mean? It's my right. But then the way he phrased it, yeah, it was such an enlightening moment. But but this is the thing, Karma. I've always felt, and sometimes I do feel, when I'm asking to access the space as if this space is doing me a favor by making it accessible. I mean, that's, that's we need to shift that. And if mm -hmm. we shift that, that shifts actually how inclusion is achieved and seen. So anyways, that's, you know. No, I mean, but, but this story, really, it also, for me, it's just, it's such a mind opener. I mean, thank you for sharing this. Thank you for sharing this. 
Um, I wanted to ask you for maybe another anecdote or another story that you can share from your life on the importance of inclusion and in decision making, where you saw that, you know, because a lot of, a lot of time is spent trying for us to prove that we need to be included, right? We spend a lot of energy saying we need to include women on peace tables. We need to have disability inclusion as if it's like, you know, <laughs> it has to come yeah. naturally, right? But we spend a lot of energy on that. And unfortunately, hopefully one day we won't have jobs anymore and we can retire because this mission would be fulfilled, right? Whether it's disability inclusion or inclu in inclusion as a whole. Um, but what example can you give me? What um, story can you share with us from your own life where you, you, you showed how important this is um, to everyone yeah. around you? That's a good question. Um, you know, this was also in grad school and one of my professors said, you know, Sara, you're going to enter a, a, a space and as a blind Muslim woman, you're going to be dealing with a lot of labels. And dealing with, you know, with certain narratives. And that's the reality. But he said that if you enter a space and you truly believe that you belong there and you have value to contribute, you, you will ultimately shift the narrative in how people are seeing you over time. Mm -hmm. But if you enter this space and you don't feel like you belong and you're allowing the narratives to impact how you're being seen, then it's going to be a vicious cycle of, 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 of being marginalized. And I, I, I mean, uh, yes, his, his words were very powerful, but then I, I took it a step further and I started reflecting. And I think there's two sides to this, to the, to, to this aspect. One is, I think we as individuals need to be on, um, on this journey of embracing all of who we are and seeing, um, seeing the value of who we are. And that's a, that's a journey. It's not a switch of a button and I wish it was a switch of a button. And I think that is constant work on making sure we are understanding who we are for who we are, not how society sees us. And I think the more we do that, the more we're able to then come into a space and understand our value. But then on the other hand, I think we need to also be part of creating that space for others. Right. So when we enter a space, we need to be very much be, be, um, become allies towards other voices and other marginalized voices. And when we're in space, we need to make sure we're allowing for people to bring their voice forward and to be advocate for others and allies for others. And, you know, and I think that is, that is very important. You know, we all have the power within us to create that space for others to bring their true self forward. So I think the more we do that, even on individual level or even on a, you know organization, whatever level you, you have impact, mm -hmm. that is very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. In, in one of your YouTube videos, Sara, you asked the audience what motivated them. Well, I'm going to ask you what motivates you, what keeps you going, what keeps pushing you forward every day? Um, for me, I think, you know, one is... I understand how much empowerment, like being empowered and being supported and being valued, how much that's impacted how I see my, like how, where I am in my life. And I, and that's a big part of why it motivates me in my work when I see people not being included or empowered. Mm -hmm. It just really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, it's a big um, um, part of kind of my motivation and all of my work. And um, 
the work of disability inclusion can be very emotionally tiring at at times and frustrating in the sense that why don't people get it? Yeah, Yeah, why don't don't they get it? (laughs) But, you know, ultimately, you know, when you see, truly believe that every single person and every single child in this world has something beautiful to contribute, and when the world is not seeing that beauty and that confidence and that value, that for me is what motivates me to keep on doing the work that we're doing. Well, Sara, thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you for keeping us motivated. Um, thank you for being so inspiring. And I want to thank you again for accepting this invitation and being our guest on the Diploma Podcast. Amazing. Thank you, Palmer. Thank you for having me.